Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Zach's. My name's Kevin. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. So glad that you're with us this morning. If you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're currently in a, a mini-series, if you will, on the, uh, the letters to the seven churches that are at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 is where we'll start this morning. If you don't have a, a Bible, uh, there should be one in the rack in front of you. Feel free to grab that. Um, the passage that we're going to be looking at is in the back, uh, page 1029, Revelation 2, verse 18. So this is the fourth letter. Uh, this is right smack dab in the middle of the series of seven. Um, it's, the, it's the letter to the church in Thyatira, and it's going to sound very similar to the one that we read last week, which was the letter to Pergamum. And they do have some things in common See, all of these churches are under pressure uh, from the culture around them to compromise their faith in one form or another. Uh, and so Jesus is speaking to them. He's also speaking to all of them and to us. Uh, and what we saw when we were looking at the letter to Pergamum was that there was a, a small group within the church that had begun to uh, follow some false teaching. Um, they, they had begun to to compromise culturally with the, the religious culture around them, the political religious culture around them. Uh, and now that we get to Thyatira, uh, it's no longer a small group, but it actually appears to be a much larger part of the church. And there's actually a, a false teacher within the church. Jesus calls her Jezebel. That's not her real name. And uh, we'll go into what that means. Uh, but she is a, a spiritual mother of sorts. Sorry, ladies. Here's your Mother's Day sermon. Um, she's not the kind of mother you want. Uh, she is a, a false teacher who is leading people astray. Uh, she's leading her children, her followers, not to Jesus, but away from him. Uh, and so with that said, let's give our attention to God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when, earth, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to hear. God, that you would give us hearts that are open and willing to understand. Lord, would you speak to us? And would you lead us in the way to life? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe those words come as a shock to you. They're they're certainly stern words. They're scary words. And when I read them, if you didn't like hearing them, you ought to be the guy who has to preach a sermon on them. Right? I don't know how often how well you respond to a stern warning. I remember, um, I think it was the last time that I rafted the Okoe River uh, on, the, on the way up. If you've, ever, if you've ever been down the Okoe, there's a section of the river that runs by, uh, I think it's a, a powerhouse. Um, and I remember our guide telling us before we, as we were getting in the rafts, getting ready to go down the river, I remember our guide saying, now listen, if you're going to fall out anywhere, don't fall out there. Because the... The rapids there and the rocks there, you don't, you don't want to be, we're going to steer our boats all the way over here on the opposite side of the river. You do not want to fall out at that part of the river. So you can guess, since I was told that's where I was to not fall out, that's precisely where I fell out of the boat. Um, but I had my guide's warning ringing in my ears, uh, and while I am not particularly quick or particularly strong, I was that day. Uh, as soon as uh, as soon as my hiney hit the cold water, I was back in the boat because uh, I did not want uh, I didn't I didn't want to be in the water where I was told not to be, uh, and that's how I think we ought to hear Jesus's words this morning. Uh, it's a warning for sure, but it's a warning designed to steer us back into the right course, uh, into the way that leads to life. Uh, this is the message that Jesus has for us and for the, the saints in Thyatira. You cannot find life in Jesus and in the world at the same time. Those two kingdoms are opposed to one another. They're, they're a completely different set of values. And so Jesus put it this way, for instance, in Matthew 6 when he said, you cannot, uh, No one can serve two masters. Uh, his brother, James, uh, writes in James 4.4. 4. He tells us that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And, and we really do want to say, like, are you sure, Jesus? You, you sure there's not maybe like a, a third way that it's, there's not just a little bit of pathway in between? Uh, and Jesus is, Jesus is very clear. And so... Uh, what I want to look at this morning is, first, uh, Jesus commends the church. Th- these letters follow the same pattern. There's usually a, a commendation, then there's some criticism, and then there's a promise at the end. And so, uh, first, we're going to see that true faith shows itself in good works, that when we're following that path to life, it's going to show itself. But then also, the, like, the, the opposite is also true, uh, that false faith reveals itself in bad works. 
that when we're believing the wrong things, we also are doing the wrong things. Uh, And then finally, what Jesus offers us is that real repentance leads to or brings life. So let's talk about what it means that true faith shows itself in good works. If you look again at verse 19, after Jesus introduces himself, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, if, you have, uh, if you've been with us through this series, you may remember that the very first letter uh, is to a church in Ephesus. And what Jesus said to them was that they, that they were holding to the truth, but they had forgotten their first love. So while they could sniff out a false teacher from 50 miles away, their lives no longer reflected that they loved Jesus or their neighbor. All right? Thyatira is in the opposite position. Jesus actually commends them for their lives, for their loves, for the way that they demonstrate their faith, right? He says they have works of love and faith and service and endurance. Love and faith are internal qualities that show themselves in service and endurance. In in other words, they're not just talking a good game. They're actually playing it. Their lives demonstrate uh, the faith that they hold, Uh, And not only that, but they're actually growing in good works, right? Jesus says that your latter works exceed the first. So in Ephesus, what Jesus tells the church in Ephesus is you need to go back to the beginning. You need to restart. You need to do the works you did at first. But to this church, he says, you guys are doing great. You're growing. You're bearing more and more fruit, right? And what we see, what we can learn from that is that that good works are a proof of a living faith. Good works are a proof of a living faith. Jesus says something interesting and quite shocking in verse 23. He says that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. So in other words, Jesus is saying that he he is the one who has eyes of flaming fire. You cannot fool him. Right? I'm the one who searches mind and heart. And then he says this, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, wait a minute. We're, we're kind of keen on grace here. In fact, it's on the sign. Like we're so keen on it, we actually, we actually put it on the sign. Right? We believe, and, and it wouldn't be a stretch to say that we actually harp on salvation by grace right as god's gift not according to works that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone so trusting in jesus right open-handed not not bringing our own works to the table but trusting in jesus works right by faith alone in christ alone are we wrong in that emphasis is Jesus changing his tone here? Is he saying something different? Do we need to change our message? No, I, I don't think so at all. What Jesus is saying, he's not saying that we're saved by our good works, but that we are proved by them. That, uh, to use the analogy, that if you want to know if you've got an apple tree, you should probably see apples on it. Right? That 
but the fruit indicates the kind of tree that it is. And if you have diseased fruit, there is something wrong with the tree. That's the way in which Jesus says, I will give to each one according to your works. He's saying that our works prove what's going on in our hearts. John Calvin, a huge proponent of grace himself, says this, It is faith alone which justifies or or makes us not guilty before God. That's what the word justification means. It is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. He's saying saying what James says, that if you have a, a true and living, saving faith, you will have the works that go with it. That a faith without works is no faith at all. Calvin says, just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. So what Jesus is saying is that faith and works go together. Healthy fruit demonstrates that you have a healthy tree. And we could even carry that a little bit further and say that what's going on here in Thyatira is that that Jesus is bringing two baskets of fruit from the same vineyard, right? Two baskets of grapes from the same vineyard. And one basket of grapes looks good. But clearly there's a blight somewhere in the vineyard because the other basket of grapes does not look good. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But may it be said of us at Grace Fellowship that we excel in love and faith, and service, and endurance. And if you want to know, okay, well, I want to excel in those things. How, how can I excel in these good works? Right? Paul says in uh, Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace and that God has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. So the next question, if you're a follower of Jesus, is, well, then what are my good works? What areas of service do I need to walk in? That's a fantastic question. Let's talk after the service and let's see if we can plug in, plug you into an area of service. Faith shows itself in good works. But as I mentioned, there's a there's a blight in the vineyard that some of the fruit is diseased. And what we see is that false faith also shows itself, and this time in bad works. Jesus says in verse 20 that he has this against them. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Uh, Once again, what Jesus is doing is he is referring to an Old Testament. He's he's using an Old Testament moment. He's going back into Old Testament history, history, the, the church of the Old Testament. And he's referring to a moment of spiritual compromise in Israel. Uh, Jezebel uh, was a queen in Israel. She was not an Israelite. She was a foreigner. Uh, We meet her in the Old Testament book of Kings. Uh, She was King Ahab's wife, but she's the one who wore the pants in the palace. Uh, She was a tyrant. She says what she wants. Uh, She often takes what she wants by violence, and she leads Israel to forsake God And worship Baal and Asherah instead. Now bear with me for a minute because there's the the correspondence here is pretty important if you can follow it. Um, 
Baal and Asherah are fertility gods. And they were worshipped throughout that particular uh, region, that particular area, all the way over to Egypt. Now, why would fertility be such a big deal? Uh, in, a, in a culture and a climate, right, think about, a, think about an arid climate where um, basically you live off of what you make from the ground. Okay? Um, so fertility, right, if, if the ground isn't fertile and the herds aren't fertile, then what happens? You starve. And then you think about society as a whole, human society. If we aren't fertile, what happens to your society? You die out, right? And so if fertility is that important, well, then we need to make sure we're making the fertility gods happy. And that's what Baal and Asherah are. They're fertility gods. And how do you make fertility gods happy? Well, aside from ironically sacrificing your food to them, um, you also commit sexual acts, right? That was part of the worship of Baal and Asherah. And so it's interesting that we have exactly the same thing going on in Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira is a manufacturing city home to uh, many different trade guilds, think labor unions. But to be a part of the guild in order to practice your trade, you had to participate in the worship feasts, which would usually devolve into some kind of sexual immorality. Okay. So, so let's make the connection. In order to survive, right, that's, that's the line, right? In order to survive, in order to be fertile, right? In order to, to make a living, you have to worship these gods. It's not Baal and Asherah anymore. It's other gods. But again, the names, the names change, but the line is the same. In order to survive, we have to do this. And that apparently is what this false teacher within the church was leading the church astray to do. Again, we see, and we've seen it again and again, that the greatest danger to the church does not come from without. It comes from within. And here we have a false teacher who is saying, hey, guys, if, if we want to survive, we're going to have to participate. And you know what? And, and her line was probably something like this. You know, these are just physical acts. It's okay. It, look, it's just food. Just keep in mind that you're a follower of Jesus, and, and we can participate in these things without any spiritual danger to ourselves. It'll be fine. We'll be fine. After all, we know the deep things. We know the secrets, the, the, the mysteries. And when, when Jesus says, uh, he talks about the deep things of Satan, what's likely is that this Jezebel teacher was saying, like, well, we know what's really true. And they might have even said, we know the deep things of God. Look, there are no hidden mysteries in Christianity. There are no secret orders. There are no deeper mysteries to which we have to have access. The gospel is everything. Life, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's, that's our only message. right? We have, there is nothing else to which we have to attain. But this false teacher was leading people astray and said, Look, if, we're, if you're, if you're going to survive, we're going to have to go this route. And it's the same today. Right? We hear the voices. We're losing the culture war. And we have to we have to give a little if we're gonna get a little. If we're gonna survive, we you know, we might need to compromise a little bit. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Which is a very funny thing to say uh, if you're living in the midst of history. How do you know if you're on the wrong side or not? Right? But those are, those are the voices that we hear. 
that we're going to lose, that we're not going to survive, that we have to make some kind of halfway compromise in order to succeed, in order for the gospel to go out. If we're going to win the culture, we gotta have to, we're going to have to meet halfway, make some concessions. Whose voice do we listen to? Who do we hear? What does Jesus say? Well, the word that Jesus uses again and again here is the word repent. That's an old-fashioned word, maybe, and it simply means to turn. It means to turn. In this context, it means to turn away from the wrong path and get on the right one. So, and that actually makes some some certain assumptions, right? First, it means that we have to see sin for what it is. Zach mentioned this earlier. We have to see primarily, first and foremost, that sin is rebellion. It's a rebellion against who God is. It's a it's a unbelief that God knows what is true, that He is the Creator, that He knows what is good. That's what sin is. And so true repentance first acknowledges that. We have to call sin what it is, sin, so that we can get off that path and go down the right one. Right? The, the choice laid before the fire tyrants is the same as the choice that was laid before Israel, and it's the same choice that is laid before us. In fact, every human being all the way back to Adam and Eve and a talking snake. And it's the choice between two, two offers of life. That's the choice, right? What the snake offered Adam and Eve and what we are offered constantly on a daily basis is two offers of life, both promises of life. One, follow God's voice, or the other, choose your own, right? Choose your own adventure. Both offer life. Both promise life and fulfillment and happiness, but only one of those actually delivers, Only one of those actually makes good on its offer. Only one of those voices is telling the truth. Repentance is acknowledging that my heart may not know what's best. That my feelings may not be the best guide. That my preferences, far from leading to my satisfaction, could actually lead down the road to death. And so what I need to do instead is listen to God's voice. And regardless of the cost, follow that one. That's the road that leads to life. So here's a question. When, when Jesus calls these people to repent and threatens judgment if they don't, is he just being mean? When he says, for instance, that he's going to give... Jezebel, exactly what she wants, right? She wants to be in the bed, I'll throw her in the bed, but not for what she's expecting, right? And I gave her time to repent, and her window is closed. Is Jesus being mean? Well, let me ask you a question. When the doctor tells you that your stomach ache is actually cancer, is he being mean? Would you... Would you rather he had just spared your feelings and sent you home under a delusion? Would you want to keep pounding Pepto-Bismol? Or would you want to know that there was a treatment 
that would save your life. Because that's what Jesus is offering. Right? We view repentance negatively, right? Some heightened religious form of apology that kind of gets Jesus off my back for a little bit. But that's not it at all. Repentance is an invitation to come home. Repentance is an invitation to come back. To admit that Jesus is life. That he knows better. That he's the creator and source of human happiness. And that if I want to know true happiness, then it's to be found in him and in him alone. Now listen to my young friends. You are on the forefront of this battle. Right? Once again, actually it's always kind of been the case. It's never not been. But once again, sexual morality is at the forefront. And you are being, and, and choices are being forced upon you. Uh, that I can't say that, that, at least in my generation, we did not have to face. Questions we did not have to answer. And so that you have to, you'll have to decide which path of life is most likely to provide the, what it promises. Which, which route provides the best offer. Is it the God who created sexuality, that beautiful gift? Or is it me? Who can decide to do whatever I want to do, right? Is it the the rise and triumph of the modern self or is it Jesus? That's that's, That's a challenge. And church, we have to do better. Sexuality is not off the table as a topic. If God created it and he created it as a good gift, which he did, then we need to be willing to talk about it with our children We need to be able to say why it's a good gift, why God prohibits certain things, and why he allows others. That's okay. Those are good conversations to have. We need to be ready to enter into that arena. Because the world, those who reject the Bible, they have no problem talking about it. So we have to be ready to enter into that conversation. And enter into it compassionately and intelligently. Because we actually do believe that the Bible has something to say and it has something good to say, right? It's not just prohibition. There's promise here as well, and we need to know what that is. But ultimately, right, Jesus Jesus promises a great reversal to those who cling to him. Look at Jesus' promise. Look at how Jesus offers himself First, at the beginning, he calls himself the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Sometimes I kind of wish we had a different window. And I mean, this one's fine. Uh, it certainly captures maybe an aspect of Jesus' personality. But what if, what if we ditched the Caucasian hippie carrying the lamb and we got a window that, of, of this Jesus, right, in Revelation 1? Eyes of flaming fire, sword coming out of his mouth, feet of bright bronze. Probably most men would be like, yeah, I'll take that, right? Maybe, maybe Jesus would be more appealing if we actually saw him in his fullness. Yes, he is the gentle and lowly who welcomes the weary, but he's also the king of heaven who warns the wayward and says, come back. Come back before it's too late. To those who come back, Jesus says this. 
The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Now that sounds really strange to us, but actually it comes straight out of Psalm 2. This is a psalm that was used to talk about the, the king in Israel. And here it's applied and it's been applied to Jesus. Jesus is saying... That to those who cling to him, things will be reversed at the end. So those who have the power now will be judged by Jesus who has true power. And those who are powerless now through clinging to Jesus will be elevated along with him. So right now you stand accused. Right now, it may look like you're on the wrong side of history. But Jesus says, hold fast. One day, the tables will turn. And then the king will bring history to an end. And all that will be sorted out. So how do I inherit that blessing? How do I receive that promise? Well, Psalm 2 actually tells us. Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Bow the knee to King Jesus, and you will receive all the blessings that come through him. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. A hard word to hear, a difficult word, and yet like all of your words, they are true. Like all of your words, they are good, and we need to hear them. So, God, I pray that you would apply your words to our hearts, that we may be new people. And we pray it in Jesus' name.